Hey guys, welcome to the Mosaic Podcast. We're coming to you from the heart of Los Angeles, California, and it is our joy and our privilege to know there's a tribe across the world that has joined us on this mission of Jesus. I'm amazed how many people have told me that it's this podcast that has really given them life, has renewed their faith, and for many of them have rediscovered Christ. If you're one of the men and women who have been encouraged and helped and strengthened and maybe even rediscovered your faith because of what's happening here at Mosaic, I want to ask you to take a step and become an investor in what God is doing through Mosaic. I love the fact that our community here in Los Angeles has been committed to you. Now I'm going to ask you to be committed to them because together we can do more than we could ever do alone. So I want you to go to the mosaic.org give section of the website and I want you to make a commitment to be a part of taking this message across the world. When we receive, we should be grateful. But when we give, we are now expressing that gratitude in tangible, practical ways. Let's together get the message of Jesus to every corner of this planet. Enjoy the podcast, and thank you so much for joining the tribe. So we've been looking together at the beautiful one. We've been journeying through the life of Jesus, specifically when he encounters individuals, because there's so much you can learn about a person, not only by the conversations they have, but the people they choose to have them with. And certainly in the time of Jesus, what they expected from him was that he would elevate his status by having conversations with the right kind of people. But Jesus always seemed to miss the mark on that. He always found himself having deep, meaningful encounters with people that everyone else would have rather overlooked. Last week we were in Colombia and, and I kind of took like the three amigos with me. I took Emerson and Carlos and Andres with me. And so I had the, the three Latinos going down there with me. And, and it was really cool going to Medellin, Colombia and hanging out and having this incredible experience and met some of the most amazing people on the planet. And, and I think the, the area is known for some of the friendliest people in the world. But no one was friendlier than Emerson. In fact, I learned so much about Emerson because wherever we were, he would make a friend. Even if we were just pausing at a light, waiting for the light to change or to cross when the traffic slowed down, Emerson would already have a friend. <laughs> we, we walked up to the security guard at our hotel. Not that we needed a security guard, but there was a security guard at the hotel. And, and Emerson's like asking him, how are you so friendly? Asking him in Spanish. How, how, what, what is it about you? Every time I see you, you're so happy. You just see this guy glowing. And Emerson said, do they send you through training courses on how to be this friendly, this happy? Or is there some kind of, like, some kind of medicine you guys take? And he goes, whatever you're taking, I want some of that. And, and I could just see this guy having a, a more beautiful sense of himself as he was seeing himself through the eyes of Emerson. I thought, this is what I love about Emerson. And, and I can see him so much better when I see him interacting with someone else. And it was, it was a, a wonderful experience. It, 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 we were at this interesting intersection and, and on, this, on the first day we were there, there were literally two shootouts. And he told us, that never happens here. But we happened to be there on a good day. And one, <laughs> I was, I think, out on the balcony, I heard, bam, 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 about eight shots at one time. I thought, wow, fireworks in the middle of the afternoon. <laughs> I came downstairs really, really quick looking for the fireworks. The guys were already out there. They go, no, man. It was like a shootout in the corner. There was, I guess there was a bank just a, a few feet from our hotel. And someone was making a withdrawal. And... <laughs> There was a little confusion or, or, or difference of opinion about ownership. And, and as he was leaving, the security guards literally just started shooting outside. And they shot back, and, and I guess they shot him in the leg. He ran by our hotel, and they found him later. 
But that was just, it never happens here. We're telling you, we know Narcos, Medellin, Escobar, but it's it's not like that here. It's so nice. And then later in the afternoon, we're walking around and and we see police and and the the street was blocked off. And and of course, Emerson's already in the conversation with a new best friend. (laughs) He said, what happened? And they're like, well, there was, um, it was, it was a, a carjacking. Evidently, someone needed a car. And they saw a BMW and they thought that car would, would suffice. And, and, and it didn't seem to bother them that the owner was already in the car. So they jumped in the car, but the owner pulled out their own gun and uh, started shooting the person who got in the car. And there was this gun battle. And I think in Medellin, if you're the criminal, you're the one that's in danger. And it was this amazing moment to, to interact with people that we might have never met. And one of the beautiful things about Jesus is that if he had only spoken to those who had high status and those that were expected, they would have never seen an aspect of God that's so essential that makes him actually more beautiful and compelling. That's what we find in John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. John writes, as he went along, speaking of Jesus, as he went along, he saw a man born blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents said he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with a saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. I think this particular encounter in the life of Jesus is, is apropos for our theme, the beautiful one. Because whenever you think of something that, that can be defined as beautiful, we normally think that, that, that beautiful things need beautiful material. I, I have this friend named Mako Fujimura. He's a world-renowned artist. And the canvas he chooses is a very particular paper that is only crafted and made by Japanese craftsmen who are the singular artisans in the world that have this particular craft. And when they die, this kind of paper will never be made again. And so even the canvas of his art is priceless. And then when he begins his work of art, he uses precious minerals like gold. And he breaks down those Minerals that by themselves are precious. And he turns them into the texture and colors of his art. And then he adds his own creativity, artistry, his own genius. And it shouldn't surprise us that his paintings sell for six figures and hang in some of the most prestigious places in the world. And it makes sense to me that something so beautiful would come from beautiful material. We're not surprised when beautiful things come from beautiful material. We're not surprised that David Beckham and Victoria Spice Girl Beckham have beautiful children. You shouldn't see photographs of their kids and go, wow, how did that happen? You just look at him and go, yeah, that's how that happened. You look at her and go, it's just not right. And they actually seem like really nice people on top of that. And that even bothers me more. They have these beautiful children because beautiful things create beautiful things. Although I, I did see this on Overheard in LA. I don't know if you follow it. I began with Overheard New York. 
Then I added the West Coast. This is from Jinky's Cafe in Sherman Oaks. Do you think we'll make ugly babies? Because ugly people make cute babies. And we are really cute. (laughs) The problems pretty people have. Will we have pretty babies? Because look at all the ugly people in the world with pretty babies. Don't worry, they grow up. And yet somehow intrinsically we know, you'll get that later. Somehow we know intrinsically that beautiful things create beautiful things. Which is what I love about Jesus. Is that he is the one who can take those things we consider to be hideous. Those things that we consider to be broken and useless and worthless. It's from material that is unexpected and unwanted that he creates his most beautiful works. This is the kind of moment we find here. I I love how John says, as he was going along, as if Jesus was simply meandering through life. Jesus was never arbitrarily going anywhere. But as he went along, it says, he saw a man blind from birth. And it's important that John notes that Jesus begins what's about to happen. It's Jesus who sees this blind man. I I have a, a suspicion that for everyone else, this man would have been invisible. The fact that Jesus saw him prompted what was about to happen. And when they saw Jesus looking at a blind man, it caused for his disciples a need to fill the empty space. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, I think it's important to note that this was a blind man, not a deaf man. Can you imagine hearing the commotion of a crowd coming and Jesus the Messiah is coming your way? The one who's supposed to be the savior of the world is coming your way. And even if he's not, he does have some peculiar abilities. He touches lepers and they're clean. He speaks to the paralytic and he walks. And by the way, one of his unique particular skills is to touch blind people and then they receive their sight. So you have to wonder if this blind man is not in this moment full of hope that as Jesus comes his way, that one of his disciples might see him and implore Jesus out of an act of compassion or empathy to heal this blind man. But instead of being moved by compassion, they begin a philosophical, theological conversation with Jesus about why this man is blind. He can hear all of this. The utter and desperate lack of empathy and compassion for him. He's just an object lesson, an object of conversation, material from which they can expand their understanding of how God works in the world. Rabbi, teacher, this is the insight we want from you. Is this man blind? Was he born blind because of his sins or his parents' sins? What a horrible view of the world. What a horrible view of God. You see, in their world, they believed that if you were born blind, if you were born with a paralysis, if you were born with epilepsy, if you were somehow born with some kind of physical impairment, that was proof that you were under the judgment of God. That was the consequence of some sin somewhere. And so they just want to ask Jesus, we know why he's blind. He's blind because of sin. That's so obvious, Jesus. 
So we're not really asking you to break that down for us. What we simply want to know is who's to blame? Is he to blame or is his parents to blame? I don't know about you, but I have a lot of things I'm guilty for. There are a lot of things I'm actually absolutely to blame. I've made so many dumb decisions in my life. Forget bad decisions, just dumb decisions that I've had to live with the consequences of my choices. And sometimes I've made a bad decision and then became a better person. Have you done that? Have you changed? You made a bad decision, but you're not that person anymore. And you wish the consequence and momentum of that bad decision was no longer there, but it chases you down. It hunts you down like an angry dog. And when you've changed, it still comes at you like, wait a minute. I don't deserve these consequences because I'm a different human being. But the consequences don't know who you are. They just know who you are. But can you imagine living in a world where you're not living out the consequences of your actions and decisions of your sins, but you're being punished for sins you're going to commit? Jesus, Rabbi, is this man blind? Was he born blind because of his sins? The only way he could be born blind because of his sins is if God was punishing him before he ever committed those sins. That's a messed up world. Frankly, that's a messed up God. See, if God were like that, he would be a malevolent, malicious God. Not worthy of our lives, our trust, or our worship. And this is their view of God. Is he blind because of his sins? That's the best case scenario. Or his parents' sins. But really, that's the way you think God works. Now, one of the things that we know, even just from a sociological perspective, is that there's, there's this odd relationship between the sins of the father and their sons, mothers and daughters, parents and children. Even if you don't call them sins. Alcoholics seem to give birth to alcoholics. Give birth to alcoholics. Give birth to alcoholics. Abusers abuse and create abusers who abuse, create abusers who abuse. Rage gives birth to rage, gives birth to rage, gives birth to rage. And some of you, you know what it's like to have had something passed on to you that is a darkness. That you never chose. It seemed as if it chose you. This is not what they're talking about. They're going to something far deeper. Is this because of the sin of their fathers? What they're actually asking Jesus, did God punish him because of his own sins or his parents' sins? I have enough sins to be punished for. Do not be punished for my parents' sins. Now, some of you, you grew up in great families. I'm so happy for you. And we're glad you're here. I, I know it's hard for a lot of you to believe this, but there are people who come from healthy families. They're mostly from the Midwest, but they're out there. They're out there. There's a mom and a dad. They're like brothers and sisters, and they actually like each other. And they love their kids. They don't consider them like a curse. They feed them like every day. They buy them clothes and send them to school and help them with their homework. I know, I know, I know. Go, go, go with me just for a minute. Suspend belief. This is out there. I'm telling you, this exists. 
There are, there are families that are just incredibly beautiful. And, and if you were born in one of those families, you have a huge advantage on the rest of us. We, we may all have the same finish line in the same race, but we did not all have the same starting line. And if you were born into a family that, that had privilege or had worked so hard, they had wealth or, or had, had really disciplined themselves and, and had, had an incredible foundation of life, you should just celebrate the fact that you didn't start where everyone else started. You shouldn't consider that a deficit to who you are. Don't let other people make you feel badly about the legacy your family has passed on to you. Celebrate that. But then there's the rest of us. And I can tell you that I did not get a head start. If there was a race, my family couldn't even see the starting block. And they put a boulder on my back and said, run! I'm like, thank you, Dad. Appreciate that, Mom. We're going to keep moving forward. And sometimes it feels like I'm living the consequence of my parents' sins. And there's some of you here, and you carry that weight in your life. But can you imagine being a follower of Jesus, with Jesus present, and when you see someone who could desperately need the touch of God, and all you can think to do is have a philosophical conversation about who's to blame. And if you're going to allow God to create a beautiful life out of your life, you need to realize that blame gets you nowhere. Not blaming other people, not blaming God, and not living in the shame and condemnation of self-blame. Accept responsibility. By, by the way, they do use the word sin here. I think it's important to note that. If you open up the Bible, the word sin's in there quite a bit. And it will apply to you. <laughs> and to me. To us. It's an uncomfortable word. And one of the reasons it's not that commonly used outside of the conversations of the scriptures is that most of the time we're trying to figure out what's wrong with human beings, we don't connect it to our divine image. But the reason the scriptures actually talk about sin is because we are created to be connected to the source of the one who is good and beautiful and true. And when we're disconnected from him, we become what we were never created to be. I can tell you, I've been married 32 years, which is awesome. You can applaud that. To my amazing wife, Kim. And, you know, there's 7 billion people on this planet. I don't know them all. But I, I know a few hundred, maybe a few thousand. And humans are really complicated. I find myself offending humans all the time. I find humans to be incredibly difficult to interact with. I don't know about you, but humans are really touchy. Very easy to hurt. But you would think after 32 years, I could actually figure out one human. See, I'm, I'm not even overly ambitious. I'm not even trying to understand all of you. I'm just trying to understand one human being that I'm married to. After 32 years, I still can't get this thing right. I'm still saying things like, I'm so sorry, honey. I, I, I didn't mean to do that. I don't know why I said that. And the problem is, I know why I said it. I don't know why I said it. Because I was thinking it so many times. 
where I didn't say it and I held it in and I knew not to say it and it just leaked out. And sometimes I think, what in the world is going on with me? See, I actually want to be a good human being. I want to be the kind of person that does good in the world and actually honors God and brings him pleasure with my life. I actually want to be that, but there's, there, there are, there are non-cooperating forces inside of me. And he looks, I think they're me. But they don't even cooperate with me. I'm like, stop it! See, there's something broken inside of me. And we keep trying to figure out where the blame is. And I want you to know that whenever the Bible talks about sin, it's not there to give blame. It's actually to give healing. See, it's, it's not a condemnation. It's a diagnosis. But for his disciples, it was a condemnation. How is it that Jesus' response to this didn't change the church. It didn't stop the church from becoming an institution of judgment and condemnation. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said. I love this about Jesus. They gave him two options, and Jesus said, there are always more than two options, except when you're voting for president. That's all I'm going to say. And, uh, I am working so hard to not say anything. But neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. See, I love this. They're focusing on who's to blame. But Jesus is sort of moving them, saying, blame gets you nowhere. What I want you to realize is that what you see as the problem is actually the potential. See, they had been taught that this man's blindness was proof that he had been abandoned by God, that he was rejected by God, that God would never use him. And Jesus saying, you need a new perspective on this. You need to see the beautiful thing that God wants to do because you think this is proof that God would never be with him, but this is the proof of where God is going to meet him. And what Jesus is actually saying to them, yes, God is telling a story. See, God is writing a story in human history. But the message is in the mess. And so many times we think that, that God wants to write a story of our life, but he can't write the story until he fixes our lives. But you need to realize that God doesn't work around the mess of you. He works right through the mess of you. He says, this has happened so that the works of God might be displayed, might be made manifest in this man's life. And there's some people who will say, see... God made this man blind. That's not at all what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is telling us is that God is not incapable of taking our most tragic condition and broken circumstance and creating something extraordinary and beautiful in the midst of it. I want you to know that this man's blindness is where God is going to meet him. And God is allowing the story to be played out so that he can be in the story of God. And I love that he says, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Have you ever prayed this prayer, Lord be with us? When I became a follower of Christ, I thought it was one of the strangest prayers I ever heard. Because before I came to know what Jesus did for me through his death and resurrection... Before I invited Jesus into my life and came into an intimate relationship with him, 
I wonder if God was out there. But then I would meet all these people who had this deep faith in God, and they would still pray, Lord, be with us today. And I'm like, I think, I think he's here. <laughs> they go, oh, Lord, be with us today. I got to stop. It, it's already happened. Don't pray for something that already is. And people get so irritated with me. Lord, you're being literal. No, the problem is you're being literal. Lord, be with us today. Yes. Now move on. <laughs> Ask something that actually changes something. See, there, there's a description of God. It's a big word. It says that God is omnipresent. Omnipresent means all present. God is everywhere at all times. He's always with you. But the reason we pray that is because we don't always have a conscious awareness of his presence. So in the scriptures, it, it talks about God's presence, but then it talks about the manifest presence of God where God becomes undeniable in a moment. I remember when I was young, I, I was learning how to be a fencer and and when I would fence, my instructor would always tell me, make yourself skinny. Make sure that you leave your opponent no target. And I think sometimes it's as if God has turned sideways and we can no longer see him because he's made himself virtually invisible to us. But it's actually because we're standing in the wrong posture and cannot see the richness and denseness of God's presence in our life. And Jesus says, what I'm going to do in this man's life is going to be so powerful that no one will ever be able to deny that I have met him and that he has met me. Isn't that what we should long for? And yet we run from the material from which God can prove himself best in us. We want God to show up in our success and in our talent and in our ability, in our genius, in the extraordinary nature of who we are. We don't want God to show up in our brokenness and our frail and desperate condition. But God said, I want you to understand that I don't need you to have it all together for me to bring it all together. See, we want God to do good in our lives, but we think that that God has to make us good before he does good. But he brings them both together and he does the good while he's making us good. It's a beautiful thing. And then Jesus There's a little ad-lib, spoken word piece. He says, as long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. I am the light of the world. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. That's an odd thing to say, isn't it? While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. He's preparing them because he's not going to be in the world soon. When he's no longer in the world in the way he is in this moment... We would become the light of the world. And after saying this, he spit on the ground and made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash. Most of the time, when Jesus does something, the immediate intuitive response is, yep, that's something Jesus would do. But this is not one of those moments this is one of those moments that if it wasn't Jesus, you'd go, Jesus wouldn't do it that way. But it's Jesus what's a little confusing. You remember that old saying, what would Jesus do? This would be one of those moments where the disciples would be like, whoa, Jesus, what would Jesus do? <laughs> I don't think he'd do it like this. And Jesus would go, I think Jesus would. See, because this is a moment that doesn't seem to match the compassion and tenderness of Jesus. This is a moment where it, it feels as if Jesus is humiliating a man was already desperate. It says that he spat on the ground 
And he took the spit and he took the dirt and he made mud. And then he put it on the man's face. And this blind man stood in a moment where all of his dignity was lost. And all Jesus said to him was, go and wash. Last week we were in Colombia. And it's, it's kind of a strange thing. I, I've traveled all over the world. But I pretty much avoided all of Latin America. I, I just tried to stay away from South America. In fact, the first place I went in South America was Brazil where they spoke Portuguese. Because I avoided all the places that spoke Spanish. And in fact, I've been all over Europe. But the one country I've never been to is Spain. Because they speak Spanish there. I spent so much of my life in Asia because I wanted to be Japanese. <laughs> spent so much time in the Middle East, in Europe, in Australia, New Zealand, India. I've gone to obscure places like Pakistan and Syria, Cambodia. But I just avoided everywhere where they spoke Spanish. And I think for decades, I didn't even do this consciously. I did it unconsciously. But as I began reflecting on it, I realized why I had done this. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't incidental. You see... As a lot of you know, I'm an immigrant from El Salvador. Spanish was my first language. I learned English when I came to the States. But, but the problem is that I was five years old when I left El Salvador and went to Miami. And at the age of five, I stopped having access to Spanish. So all I had was the Spanish of a five-year-old with the soul of a Latino, but the language of Lat. No Tino. And to add a more difficult scenario, my mom remarried an American who did not speak Spanish. And so he did not like when me and my brother spoke in Spanish because he thought we were saying things about him. We were. But, but, <laughs> but what's the point of being bilingual if you can't do that? And so we were forbidden from speaking Spanish in our home. But I did not want to lose my Spanish because my grandparents lived in El Salvador and I wanted to hold on to my, my culture and my language, but I was, I was five. And so I actually signed up in elementary school on my own initiative to take a Spanish class. But the problem is we're from El Salvador and our teacher was from Cuba. And my mom did not like the way Cubans spoke Spanish. So I came home speaking Cuban Spanish and she said, what do you, where'd you learn that? I said, in school. And she made me drop that class the next day. Because she would rather have me learn no Spanish than the wrong Spanish. So I lost my language. And then I was eight years old. I was in El Salvador for one of the last times. And my grandfather, who I loved so much, but he was a tough man. He ridiculed me for not speaking Spanish. I'm eight. I have no control over my life. He's like, que sinvergüenza. Olvidaste su español, su idioma. By the way, that translates into, you're shaming our family. Because you've lost your language. How could you lose Spanish? I, I'm eight. <laughs> and I understand they wanted us to transition to this new culture, to speak English. Without an accent. I, I, I could never understand that. My mom still speaks with an accent. But I lost my accent. Because I was told not to speak English with an accent. I, I, I couldn't get it when I came to L.A. Fifth generation Latinos here who do not speak Spanish. But they speak English with an accent. I, I, I don't get that. It's like, <laughs> like, bro, like, what's the deal? You know, pick a language and get it. 
Part of the reason I avoided all Latino section of the world is because I didn't want them to know what I what I'd become. I, I didn't want them to know the deficit inside of me. I, I, I love traveling to Korea. I could pick up my little phrases along the way. And they would go, wow. I go, are you making sale? Arigato. I love going to Japan, picking up my little Japanese. Go, Going to Germany. I just go, I ain't swipe, drive. You know, just counting in German. And, you know, and, ah, you know, I pick up a big phrase and go, you speak German? Yeah. And even if I just had five words, people go, it's amazing. But it's different when you were Spanish and you can't speak Spanish. So I avoided it with every fiber of my being. I didn't want to go back to the place or to any place that would remind me of what I was not, what I'd lost. And, and then to add insult to injury, I would meet so many Americans who could speak Spanish better than me. And it was just, oh, it just grated at my soul. And they would take on all the Latin mannerisms and think they were Latino. And like, you know, ay, hermano, hablamos en español. I'm like, dude, you're white. You're white. You're white. Nothing's going to change that. Nothing's going to change that. And, and I just have to like chill. And, and then they correct my Spanish. And I just, mm. gracias. So then we're in Colombia, and, and, and the first day I'm speaking there, I have my translator. It's so humiliating having a Spanish translator. See, I don't know how this happened. I know I should only have the education of a five-year-old in Spanish. But when I was in my 20s, somebody gave me a, a Reina Valera Spanish Bible. It's like a King James Version, Shakespeare, Latino Shakespeare. And the first time I opened the Bible, I could read Spanish fluently. And I didn't know how. I'd never studied one word in Spanish in my life. And I felt as if God had just like, opened up my mind and I could read anything. But I couldn't speak. And so here I am in Colombia with my translator and I'm saying a line, he's saying a line, but I understand everything he's saying. And it's so irritating. I mean, it was just so boring to hear myself <laughs> through a translator and go, come on. And then I think to myself, that's not what I said. You, you said something different than what I said. But he's a translator, so he's translating. He's great. And so I, I just lived with that the first day. So humiliating. Then the second day, there was a Q&A. It was only 300 people. It didn't matter. It wasn't a huge group. It was pastors and leaders. Like, it didn't matter. I, I, they would have been so respectful. And, and, and anything I said in Spanish, they're like, ¡Ay! ¡Vámonos, hermano! I just go, ¡Cristo vive! They go, ¡Ah, qué bien! And I, I, I can say anything. You just take one little phrase and... Like, oh, I could gang. And, and so I did this Q&A for like an hour in Spanish. And my translator sat next to me, but I never used him. Thought, okay, I can do Q&A. Except later I realized that when I said Q&A in Spanish, it's not Q&A. <laughs> and, 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 but then the conference shifted to like 7,000 people. Like, yeah, we're, we're not going to go there. And I said, I need my translator. But, you know, Emerson and Carlos and, and Andres were like, bro, you got to speak in Spanish. 
You got to preach in Spanish. Come on. And w- when we travel together, we all try to speak in Spanish the whole time. And, and I do the best I can. And they kind of help me along the way. And, but like, come on, bro. You got you to do this in Spanish. And I'm like, I, yeah, no, I don't. I, not, not yet. I kept saying, I, I'm almost there. I'm almost there. I kept saying, I'm almost, but I'm not, not yet. Soon, one day. But, but not today. And they're like, come on, bro. You got to get it. Just do it. Just got to do it. And, you know, peer pressure. And I thought, how do I come back to L.A. and tell these guys to have the courage to step into their weakness and trust that God will make them strong? If I don't even have the courage to get up there and speak in Spanish, I knew it. I could just feel it. The shame was overwhelming me. And so that, that, then they canceled me and moved me to a different section, which made me more anxious. And I just got up there and spoke in Spanish, and I, I, I finished way early. I mean, I was done in 25 minutes because I was out of words. I used, I used all the words I had in Spanish. And they're like, whoa, you're short. And I go, yeah, I was, I was done. I was done. You can only say the same thing so many times. And you were like, well, that's it. So I, just, I literally just like dropped the mic, walked off. They're like running up there because I left the stage empty. They're like, I th- 25 minutes. I, got, I did this. And, and it was okay. But the people were so excited that I was speaking in their own language, in my own language. But then I had to speak one more time the next night at the big giant rally where they're jumping up and down and the music is insane and the people before me are, are just preaching and, and everyone's cheering. And then I, and I, I, and I'm literally going, I can't do this. I, and, I, and I said, I'm, I'm going to go back to English. And, and I think it was Emerson said, bro, you can't go back. I'm like, bro, I'm going back. I'm just like, watch me. I'm going back. I'm going into my time machine. They're like, no, bro, you can't go back. They already heard you in Spanish. You can't go up there with a the translator. I said, hi, I need some. I need some, uh, I need some, like, Jesus Red Bull, you know, <laughs> adrenaline injection into my heart. So I called my beautiful wife, Kim, because, you know, we've walked together for 30-plus years. And sometimes you need, like, that, that soul person that just helps you with the faith that you don't have. So I said, honey... I preached in Spanish. She goes, why? <laughs> I said, well, what, what, what do you mean why? She was like, why? Why did you do that? I said, well, you know, everybody was like encouraging me. And, and you know, I, I'm, I, I'm Spanish. And, uh, and she goes, yeah, but, but yeah, I don't know if that was a good idea. In fact, I don't think it was a good idea. And, and, and I said, well, I, th- I think it, it, it went okay. I, I mean, I, I understood me, and, 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 and I said, I got I to I speak one more time tonight. It's like this huge, thousands and thousands of people, and I'm a little nervous, and, and I'm thinking, should I, should I speak in Spanish? She goes, don't do it. And I said, what? She goes, don't, 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 don't do it. Okay, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe this is like reverse psychology. <laughs> don't do it. I'm going to do it. But that's not what she meant. It was like, it was like she was more like, don't do it. Don't do it. And I, and I said, why? And she said, the message is too important. Don't, 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 don't lose the message for the translation. So you have Javier, you have Emerson, you have Carlos, you have Andres. Let them translate. I hope it goes great. Click. <laughs> and I was scared out of my mind. And you know what I was mostly terrified of? Being absolutely humiliated. Finding myself in front of thousands of people 
and they would discover how inadequate I am. You see, there's so many times in my life where I feel like I'm just spit and dirt. Not precious material. I'm just spit and dirt, and the best hope I have is that Jesus can take me in his hands and turn me into mud and use that mud to do something I could never accomplish alone. See, I, I wondered for so long, why did Jesus do that? I think it's so funny when I read theologians. I, they, they just make me laugh. They go, oh, this, this was not like human spit. This, honestly, this is what's written. This was divine spittle, which is different than spit, spittle. It, it was the spittle of God. You have to say that with an accent. And, and I, no, I don't think so. I don't think God ever spat. See, I don't think, like, God was in eternity creating the, the heavens and the earth going, you know, nailed it. I've been watching, right? I, I, I've been watching the World Series. There's a lot of spitting in baseball. I didn't know that. They have a lot of time. And between, you know, things, they spit a lot. And I'm like, don't show the spitting. I, I am grossed out when another human being spits. How about you? I mean, if you have a spitting habit, don't do it around me. I'm just like, oh, man, don't do that. It's, it's just nasty. And I don't know if you know this because you may not know the context, but in the time of Jesus, spitting was nasty. And in fact, if you spat in front of someone, it was considered an act of disrespect and disgrace. You could not make a more physical statement of disdain than to spit. And Jesus chose to spit in front of all these people as he approached this blind man. And I've done some research To create mud out of spit, you need a lot of spit. (laughs) Not like dainty, you know, chick spit. (laughs) You know, it's like manly spit. A lot of spit. To make mud, you have to spit a lot. It's a strange thing about spit. I don't know if you know this, but you have spit right now in your mouth. Just be aware of it. (laughs) Like, I have spit in my mouth. I'm okay with it. In fact, I can even swallow my own spit and... I'm all right. I'm not really grossed out by it or anything like that. I mean, I don't want to think about it too much, but, you know. <laughs> but you, you're, you're swallowing your own spit all the time. It's just very natural. But you know what's the odd thing? The odd thing is that if you actually spit, the moment you spit, you're kind of grossed out by your own spit too. The moment you spit, you no longer associate with it. It's like, it's not mine. Like, you know. It's like, it's now a part of the universe, and it's not like a part of who I am. And if I asked you right now, just swallow your spit. It's like... It's there. You're good. But if I asked you right now to spit into a glass. See, I don't know where your imagination is going, but if I asked you to spit into, into a glass until you have enough spit to have a good, like, solid drink. Right? right, right. I'm pretty certain you're not going to drink that, but I don't even think you want to put your fingers in it. And if I asked you, just, no, no, you don't have to drink it. That's gross. All I want you to do is just put your fingers in your own spit, not someone else's spit. This is not like washing someone else's feet. This is just your own like spit thing. And if I ask you to put your fingers in your spit and then just to, just to rub that spit <laughs> across your eyes, you'd be okay, right? It's just your spit. See, if you're okay with that, you are a really troubled human being. There's something wrong with you because we all know once the spit leaves, it's not yours. Can you imagine in this moment, Jesus is spitting. I don't care who he is. It wasn't like shiny angel dust God spit. It was Jesus of Nazareth spit. 
And he takes the spit and he takes his dirt, the two most base materials that he could get his hands on, and he turns it into mud. And remember, this guy was blind, but not deaf, and certainly not lame. If I were the blind man and I heard Jesus spitting, and I heard people going, he's spitting. A lot. (laughs) And he's taking dirt, and he's making mud, and he's moving toward the blind man. (laughs) See, if I were the blind man, I would be going... I think I'm out. See, I, I, I think that we've had a misunderstanding of need here. And I, Jesus, I'll come back tomorrow and maybe you have a different perspective on this whole thing. I'm not going to sit there and let Jesus of Nazareth put his spit and dirt on my eyes. But he waited and did not move. And Jesus came and caked that mud on his eyes. And then he says, okay, go and wash. No promise of healing, no encouragement, no beautiful beatitude, just go and wash. See, if I'm that blind guy, I'm not going anywhere. I'm grabbing leg, I'm grabbing robe, I'm grabbing Messiah, I'm grabbing Jesus. I'm going, I'm not letting go until you give me sight. If he looked at me and said, go to the pool and wash, I'm like, who do you think I am? I know I'm blind. I know that no one here feels I have any value. I'm invisible to them. I know they are convinced that I'm condemned by God. But why would you add to my misery humility and humiliation? Why would you take my face with your spit and dirt and then tell me to go and wash? See, what, what I'm convinced God is trying to say to us as he creates a beautiful thing out of our lives is that we need to stop waiting for better material. That we need to stop waiting until we get better, until we are better, or until we're what everyone else thinks we're supposed to be. We need to just recognize that we're just spit and dirt, but we can become this extraordinary mud in the hands of God that he will use to set others free and give them sight to see the beautiful all around them. Um, It's not what they expected from God. And, And then Jesus doesn't even help them. He says, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. He's a blind man. I mean, he could at least, like, delegate to someone like Bartholomew who does nothing. <laughs> and say, Bartholomew, this is your chance to get in the book. Take the blind man to the pool of Siloam. It's like, I got this, Jesus. Right? <laughs> nothing. He just says, get to the pool. How do you get to the pool of Siloam when you're blind? And when you have spit and dirt caked like mud on your eyes. I I can only imagine what people were saying as he worked his way through the crowd. As he asked anyone for help. As he tried to find his way to that pool. I can imagine the ridicule and the humiliation and the murmuring. Why would Jesus do this? kind of cruelty is this, that God would leave a man in worse condition than he found him. See, I think sometimes we're trapped in between our blindness and the pool of Siloam where we receive our sight because we think that God has to make us better material before he actually brings something new inside of us. I I, I wonder Was this man blind 
until he washed his face at the pool of Siloam? Or had he received his sight but could not see because the mud that Jesus had placed there concealed the miracle that he had already found? But he slowly found his way to the pool of Siloam. And John wants us to understand, in case you don't get this, because you, you may not be one of the people of Israel, and you may be a Gentile, and you may not know that, that the word Siloam means sent. What Jesus was saying to him is go to the place called sent. See, there's some things you cannot see when you're standing still. There's some things you can only see when you're in motion. I remember I used to experiment with this. You ever, you ever sat on the side of the road and just watched cars go by 70 miles an hour and the people inside of them are a blur? But you get in your car and you match the speed of the car that's flying by you. You can make eye-to-eye contact with the person next to you. See, I think so many of us cannot see the beauty of God because we're standing still waiting for God to do something. And he's saying, I want you to go to the place called sense. I want you to move to the place of obedience. I want you to trust me with your life. And when we move in obedience, when we trust God and follow his voice, that's when we see the beauty of God and the beauty all around us waiting to be seen by us. But we keep looking for the beautiful in the wrong places. We, We think that that the beauty of God is in cathedrals and castles. It's unexpectedly in the spit of the dirt. A few months ago, I was at the Vatican, and one of the curious things that happened was that they had a moment where they invited the eight or so world leaders from different religious expressions to be on the stage with the Pope. And when I arrived, I was in the um, VIP area, but I wasn't on stage with the religious leaders. And, and, and then the person in charge of the event that I worked with, they came and said, oh, you're supposed to be on stage. I said, I, I, well, it's okay, because I'm already here. Go, but no, but you're supposed to be up there with the religious leaders. And I said, no, I, I'm fine right here. But, but I said, but I am curious, did you forget? She goes, yes, I'm so sorry, we forgot. And I said, no, it's okay that you forgot, but I just want to know, why did you forget? Because I think I knew. She says, well, I'm not really sure why we forget. I don't, I don't know. It's just an oversight. I said, I think there's a reason. See, everyone on stage has a robe on. And everyone on stage has like a really cool hat. And everyone on stage is like Jesus bling. And they're all like this, this visible manifestation of the pomp of religion. And I was just wearing a suit. Because sometimes we keep thinking that God is in the stained glass but God is in the stains. So I thought I should bring my bishop's hat and my royal robe. He goes, you know what happened to that blind man? The moment he received his sight, people came up to him and said, You're not, you look like that, that blind guy. But you can't be the blind guy because you can see. But you look so much like that blind guy. And he's like, no, oh, it's me. I'm that guy. I, I, I was the blind guy, but now I, but I can see. And they go, no, 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 you're not. You know who I am. They go, no, you, you're not. I'm telling you, we know that guy. He's not you. I'm telling you, I know that guy because I am that guy. It's me. 
And then he said, okay, if you're the guy who was blind, but now you see, where's Jesus? He goes, I don't know. He laughed when I was blind. And I just went where he told me, but I don't know where he went. Well, that's a little disturbing to us. See, well, you know what I love about how Jesus works, how he creates beauty in this world? Is that he creates unexpected beauty inside of us. And no one expects it. Everyone expects you to come in your robe, in your crown, in your glory. No one expects you to show up just spit and dirt. So you don't have to be more than you are. All you have to do is let God be who he is in you. Just show up. Be spit and dirt. Just let God craft you. Let him make his mud. Put it on your blindness. Give you the the eyes to see the beauty all around you. And let people be confused because you're going to show up at work. They're going to look at you and go, you look like the guy that used to work here. But you can't be that guy. They go, no, I'm that guy. They go, no, you look like him, but you can't be because that guy was not kind. That guy had an, an anger issue. That guy was impatient. But, that, that, but you're not like that guy. You go, no, it was, it was me. But, but what I discovered was that I was just spit and dirt. And when Jesus placed his hands on me, everything changed. See, people are going to look at you and say, you look like the woman that I used to know, but you're not her. You go, no, no, I'm still her. You go, no, no, you're not because I know what she looks like. She didn't look like you. See, what Jesus wants to do is he wants to create an unexpected, surprising beauty in you that confounds the world and confuses everyone. The beauty that you're looking for can only be found in a place called scent. That place of obedience. That place where God created you to be. Where you could reflect him best. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Remember, we can do together what we can never do alone. Go to mosaic.org slash give and join us in taking this message and spreading it across the world. God bless. Thanks so much.